Hey everybody, I'm back. Yay! <sighs> Welcome you guys to a new edition, new year, new us, yay, of The Way with Anoa. I'm your hostess with the mostest, Anoa J. Changa. It has been such a long time. I haven't talked to you guys in about a month. Um, right before I went to Puerto Rico, which was an amazing opportunity. And I am broadcasting and not showing you me. See, I'm out of I'm out of practice, you guys. I haven't streamed in in a whole month. I completely forgot to change my change my um you know stuff over. But um I just wanted to briefly first, right? There's so much going on right now. I have a great guest coming on at 10 o'clock Eastern. Uh 7 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Um, Armand and I met at the uh, Ohio Mobilized 88 event back in July, along with, you guys know, um, Amy for the People, who's also running in Nevada. So that's going to be a really good conversation. So please, you know, stay tuned. But I want to tell folks about this picture, right? I got a chance to travel to Puerto Rico with my uh, comrade and sister, Donna Davis, and Greg Cruz, some amazing folks, and they did mutual aid relief um, in the Tampa area, you know, when Hurricane Harvey and Maria hit. But then they also pulled together resources. And as soon as people were able to go into Puerto Rico, they pulled together resources there locally in Florida, raised money, and a, a group of them, you know, went and did, you know, on the ground grassroots relief work. They went into areas, and I, I mentioned this briefly, this was back, and I think in in September, October, right? And they, they went up into the mountains of Macau. They were in um, so many different areas. We were in Macau. We were in Calle. We were, we, we were all over the island when I went back with them to kind of just catch up and see, you know, check in on families and people and, and, and see what's going on. I'm definitely going to do a fuller conversation with Greg and Donna so we can talk about that work, talk about the documentary they're working on and how we can leverage this concept of mutual aid in our grassroots work and organizing. Because what, when, what, the more and more I think about and learn about these mutual aid efforts, when we look at what we're doing, whether it's the political side of running campaigns and working with candidates, or we're just thinking about just the basic organizing one-on-one political education, like the concept of mutual aid and, 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 and communities, individuals actually funding, you know, literally life-saving work, like, when we were in Macau, we were up in Mariana, and there's a community. I shared pictures of it before, and you know, there, there that has been an effort. They're feeding about two, three hundred people a day at this point. Um, you know, so much of the food was donations, and now they do it just on a contribution basis. Like if you kick in three dollars for a plate, and, and and it's some of the best beans and rice, of those, you know, and, and and I mean, like it was it was so great and so amazing, so awesome, but. What I wanted to talk about, and I think it's something that we already see in our own spaces and in our own work, is that we, you know, we have these opportunities, we have these challenges, we have these these huge challenges, and we have these huge deficits in terms of financial resources, right, on its face, a lot of times in our communities, but there's so much needed work. We have to think strategically. We have to figure out how to leverage potential partnerships, opportunities, strategies. We just got to, you know, everyone always says think outside the box. But we got to apply that to ourselves and our own lives and our own communities and our own work and not only in the moment of crisis. I mean, it's definitely amazing to see how people come together in crises, but to see it continue, 
so to be in Puerto Rico, uh, I believe we were there between like days 83 and 88 or something to that effect. You know, we were, we were there approximately three months post, post, uh, I almost want to say Katrina post Maria, um, and Irma, you know, we, you, you, you saw the resilience you saw people who maybe never thought that they themselves would be that person, that leader. Um, shout out to Miss Lily uh, from the Camp of the Forgotten. Their community, and and I've shared pictures and videos, and I'll share everything again. Um, it's been a hectic day, so I didn't have everything all queued up for you guys. But, you know, their community had a bridge that connected it to the main part of their community, you know, to their town. Um, and the bridge was destroyed, like completely, this was a concrete bridge, completely destroyed. And so they were only able to ford over, you know, the water, but in the process, a, a, a sewage line that I guess un, went under the river was, was, was destroyed too. And it turned out that by that waiting, like Lily and others actually got a rash, you know, got exposed to toxins. And, and that was very difficult. So they, they had fine ways to get supplies over to their side, you know, uh, so neighbors, community members from the main part of town would, would send stuff over. And when we were there, there was a makeshift bridge that was put in place um, to kind of help make things possible. There's still actually some of their family members in another section of, of a neighborhood were actually still, when we were there last month, trapped behind a, a landslide. Um, because, you know, when you're up in the hills and the mudslides and stuff like that. So there are communities that are extremely impacted. There are communities that have not been reached or touched by any type of assistance. But it is other people who also have lost their homes or have no power. Um, when we were in um, the areas, you know, estimates of power restoration when we were there a month ago was, you know, in most in the couple of places we were at was July. You know, you've you probably have seen reports now with even though almost 70 percent of the grid is up, still half the island has no power. Half the people like literally have no power. And we noticed that because even though we would see reports, you know, of, of, of the grid, they were reporting on the grid, but not on the actual households. You know, uh, the family we stayed with in Kaye when we first got there, they were actually using solar light bulbs and they were able to actually run a generator. But, you know, having run a generator for a week after a storm in West Virginia that, that gets expensive. That's really expensive. That's very cumbersome. And you know, it's not like it's, it's 50 something degrees. It's 80, you know, it's in the eighties and stuff. So can you imagine when it starts to get even warmer, more humid? I mean, there's a real opportunity in terms of solar and green technology and we're going to bring, hopefully we'll be able to connect with some folks to have that conversation as well. But, but when we got to Louisa, which is where this picture comes from, right? Um, so, so I changed my, I know there were some folks who were saying like, oh my God, I couldn't find you. Like, oh my God, you know, you're, you're, what happened to you on Twitter? Well, I changed my name. My name on Twitter got changed, um, to Aldolfina Villanueva, AKA Black Justice. Um, Aldolfina Villanueva is represented here in this picture next to me. Um, so we, we, we had the opportunity in Louisa. Louisa is, you know, uh, has a large, I think it's majority black population, uh, descendants of enslaved Africans, uh, settled in Louisa. And we went to Louisa. We, we met with the artist, Samuel Lynn, Samuel Lynn, Google him, look him up. He is amazing. He has amazing work. If anyone is interested in being a patron of an artist, um, because of, you know, again, with the hurricane, so much of his, his, his craft 
you know, uh, is, is tied to the work that he does with hands and materials. And, you know, things are scarce and scarce on the island. So if anyone would like to contribute to help, you know, get the artist Samuel Lin, I mean, his work is amazing. Get him, you know, some more materials, some more paints. And, and he's, you know, trying to clean up and touch up some of the paintings if he can. You know, he was able at least because he had a room built in his house. He was able at least to save a lot of his work. But he said a lot of stuff got damaged, even from the humidity and mold and things like that. So, but he was so gracious, right? Um, because we actually went on a day, he has a studio on the first level of his house. We actually went on a day where his studio was closed. But we happened to meet another woman who's a cousin of his, and they're another artist family, the Ayala's. Um, we happened to meet one of his cousins, one of the Ayala's, like when we were, you know, looking around the area and stuff like that. And we talked with her and she took us around like the actual workshop. Uh, they make these really amazing masks uh, uh, for, for, for there's uh, two festivals that happen. I think it's two or three festivals that happen there. And Louisa specifically. And Louisa is also where Bomba comes from. It's, it's an amazing, amazing, you know, community to experience. Louisa also, you know, just like here on the quote unquote mainland, I hate that term, you know, it's a black community and it has the same struggles and issues as black communities in terms of displacement, in terms of police brutality and violence and civil rights issues. And so, so one of the Ayala's, she introduced us, their cousin. So she, and she, she went over and knocked us. She's like, Samuel, I, it's key. She, you know, she's yelling and got him to open the door and explain who we were, we were. And so he's, he's looking at us like, okay, whatever. But he started talking to us. And the more we all talked and conversed, he just lit up and opened up. And so we spent hours one day with him, you know, in his home, in his studio. And when he was giving us a tour, he showed us this picture. Well, actually, I saw it on the wall. And I understood what it was. I don't know if you guys, you know, get it, get the reference. But that is a representation of Lady Justice, right? We're used to seeing Lady Justice holding the scales, you know, holding the scales and she, she, you know, she has her scales. She's blindfolded. Justice is blind, right? Well, in this picture, Justice has the blindfold in her hand. She, she's, she's taking the blindfold off and she's looking out into the distance. She's checking for you because she's, Justice is not blind. She sees very clearly. The scales are down by her side. Her sword, you know, is at the side too. And I saw the picture in the corner. And again, like this is a greater experience that I'm a part of, right? So I'm not going to make this about me. But I immediately was connected to and resonated with this picture. It was amazing. Um, so when we came back around, like I, I made a comment to Don about, Don about it. She got really excited. And she told him I was a lawyer or whatever. He, so his face lit up. And that's when he started talking to us about some of the civil rights abuses and issues with police. And, you know, Across our visit, even though everyone didn't use the same language in terms of colonialism or liberation, it still came across very clearly what it is like to not just be living in Puerto Rico, to live in Puerto Rico as, still, as it still exists as a colony of the United States. And then also when we were in Louisa talking with, you know, the artist Samuel Lynn and other folks, you know, what it's like to be black, a black American, you know, a black person a black Puerto Rican person, um, Boricua, you know, what, what, it, what is that like? Right. And so Aldofina, so he later explained it to me, right. Aldofina Villanueva was murdered in, I believe it was 1980, the year before I was born. Um, she was a community activist and, and I don't even know if she would consider herself community activist. You know how it is. They're just people who are just those people who just do right. They, they just, you know, they grow up someplace, they're committed to the land, they're committed to their people. And, and that, 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 that notion of the land, 
right? The comedian that committed to the land, it was so strong, you know, when he was talking and telling us about her. And what it was is like Louisa, because of how it was settled, it's along the coast, it's beach area. And developers wanted, you know, the city developers, they wanted to develop this. They wanted to basically do quote unquote slum clearance and they wanted to clear people. And Aldofina is, is, is she refused. She refused to allow them to, to, to take the land that had been in her family. And, and I'm trying, so if anyone, cause obviously I was told by one of the restaurant owners uh, when we were in Louisa that I need to learn Spanish, me personally, not have anyone else translate for me so that when we go back, I'm able to sit down and actually do the interviews myself directly one-on-one because it'll be more rich dialogue. And I appreciate that. And I'm, I'm definitely going to find time to work in learning uh, a language that I kind of, you know, how we kind of learn it when we're kids, um, but, but really learn it for real, for real. So, but if anyone does speak Spanish fluently and can help me translate some of these articles because the Google translate um, and the videos, there's some videos and articles that talks more specifically about this, what actually happened. But from what I was able to piece together and what he was able to tell me from his memory was that she, she took a stand, you know, they, she had been one of the people that was resisting moving and, and giving up her property and she took a stand and they showed up with basically like a militarized police force like they do to us today. Like this stuff that happens now is cyclical. Right. It, it, it doesn't matter whether you're, you know, here in Atlanta, you're in Chicago, Midwest, out, out, out West Coast. Um, if you're on the island of Puerto Rico, like they will show up in our communities and they treat us as if we're criminals. You know, they, they, they treat us as if they have access and rights and we don't. And, you know, she's a bad mamma jamma. According to the story, she had a machete with her when she when she went to the door and they, they shot her several times. And they actually also shot her husband and their children, some of their children were present. Um, but that incident, that incident, uh, that community was then left untouched. They, they did not bulldoze. They did not, were not able to clear that community the way it is. And it's where the artist Lynn, his studio is now. It's where he lives. I mean, he's born and raised, he grew up in Louisa and so many people, there's such a connection to the land, the community and the culture there, which is very much richly imbued with, you know, the African heritage that was, that was passed down from enslaved Africans, um, many moons ago. So Aldofina Villanueva, AKA Black Justice, which has been my Twitter name now since I was in Puerto Rico and the picture, which if you check me out on Facebook has been my profile picture, that is, that's the story behind the picture. I've been sick. It's been so much going on. I didn't get a chance to tell it yet, but the, the, the trip to Puerto Rico was very interesting, and I, I, I am definitely working on uh, a piece to put it all in perspective and, and, and get some input, and I definitely want to bring on the rest of the team to talk more about not just, you know, hi, this is what we did and stuff, but this notion of mutual aid work. How do we tell our own stories, which dovetails into the rest of the conversation for tonight? Um, there were just a couple of court cases that are going on right now I just want to touch on real quickly. But, um, but yeah, it's a, it's a lot going on. It's a lot going on and we, um, you know, we're here, we're doing, we're doing, doing what we got to do. But when we think about doing this type of stuff, right? Citizen journalism, independent media, podcasting. I just saw, I had a text, I had a tweet from someone asked me, can I start focusing on a couple different um, subjects? If you're listening, if you're tuned in, um, if you have suggestions on people, you know, to interview or you've got topics and stuff you'd like to see me cover, you could drop me an email, thewaywithfanoa at gmail.com. And if you really want to make something happen even faster, if you volunteer 
and to help a sister out because, you know, I know we're all busy. I know we have a lot going on, but we have to help build this and make this work ourselves because, you know, we're not going to have the good content. We're not going to have the focus on the issues that we need to have, that we need to see uh, solely relying on traditional media. Right. I mean, we might be able to get if there's something really breaking or sensational happening. You might be able to get a news story out there. You might be able to get someone to pick up your press release. But for the real meat and griddle, the real education, the real organizing work that needs to be done, we have to rely on each other to make sure that we can get the, the word out there. That we can get good information out there. Um, so that brings me today. Chuck Modiano was actually here. Uh, if you guys follow Chuck Modi on Twitter, you know, like Chuck is like all over the place, um, along with like Reb Z, several other people. He was, uh, 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 there's a, there's a sister that streams named Heather. You know, there's a lot of folks on the ground in Ferguson after the Stockley verdict, right? And, and there is a culture. There are, there are people who have become these citizen journalists, who have become these independent media voices that are there, that are able to help provide information, showcasing what's actually going on. And, and, it, and it's, it's so crucial when you have these incidences, when you have these protests and things like that going on. But it's also important when we have events like where I was today with Chuck. Um, uh, you know, Chuck came into town last, you know, he was just like, he, he came, Chuck literally came straight from New York. Um, he was present for, you know, Erica Garner's uh, funeral just, just happened. And I haven't, you know, I talked about with Ben about getting on and we should do something. Katie uh, Halper and I are still considering doing a, a, a show around, you know, Erica and, and, and some other stuff. But at the same time, it's just like, I'm not the type of person, you guys know me, I don't like to insert myself as if I'm more important than I am. And while I did have interactions with Erica and was always extremely positive, um, you know, I mean, it's weird when you think about how you knew someone, but it's social media, right? Like I did not have the opportunity or the privilege to, to ever actually meet Erica face to face in person. But from what those around me, you know, Candace Fortin, um, Melissa Burns, so many people, so many people from the Vernon campaign, Marcus Farrell, so many people knew and worked with Erica and, and you, you can tell, you know, I know there's people, there's people who have some, some issues, you know, over some tweets and other things that she may have had at a certain point in time. And I definitely respect and understand people's need to discuss, you know, and critique even in memoriam of people, you know, uh, uh, nobody's perfect. Right. So, so I appreciate the dialogue. I appreciate dialogue a lot, as long as it's respectful y'all. But, um, so I didn't want to, you know, be all like, yeah, and Erica, my friend. And I mean, like I said, I, I, I considered her sister, whether she considered me that way or not, I don't know, but I, you know, you know, my time, I'm not very aggressive with, with interviewing and, and, and getting people pinned down. So I'd reach out to her and she, it, it, you know, life is busy. And, and especially when you're someone who's doing the work and she was someone who did the work. And so I got a chance to talk with Chuck a little bit today about, you know, the funeral. If you guys check out his timeline, he has a video, you know, the police presence. And it's just, it's just, a, it's mad disrespectful. Like, you know, Folks can talk about, you know, they're for blue lives and things like that. And, 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 and not that any other incident has not been egregious, but, you know, for, to hear about the disrespect, you know, from NYPD when family, friends, supporters, you know, are trying to mourn, um, it just blew my mind. But, you know, we, we've seen accounts. This is, this is, this is not new. This is what they did to our leaders back in the day. This is, this is 2018. We are 50 years from 68. I mean, 50 years ago, 
you had, you know, this is the year the assassination of Martin Luther King. This is the creation of the Republic of New Africa this year, the founding of National Coalition uh, of the Constitutional Conference of Black Lawyers. I mean, 68 was the assassination of Robert Kennedy. There's such a momentous, that whole period, right? You know, we're coming up on in a couple of years, 50 years since Soweto. I mean, this, is, this stuff is cyclical. And that's not to say that it's always going to keep happening. We just need to learn. We need to revise. And we need to really come together the best we can. So I wanted to just talk a little briefly about what, where, where I was at today, what I got to be a part of in, in, in an experience. Um, I don't, like I said, I, I, it's, it's, the day's been, been, been real hectic. So I wasn't able to get like my own video and stuff up yet. But like I said, go check out Chuck Modiano's, um, he's Chuck Modi one, M-O-D-I, Chuck M-O-D-I one on Twitter, if you don't already follow him. Um, but he just had, you know, I mean, we were both there. We both had video and stuff. I just haven't had a chance to get mine up, but, um, Jamarian Robinson was murdered by U.S. Marshals, uh, trying to serve a warrant here, uh, uh, in Atlanta metro area. And, um, it was back in June, 2016. And, you know, his mom, she was asking me, she's like, what do you know? And I was like, you know, I, this sounds vaguely familiar, but I, I feel remiss. I feel, I feel so ashamed that I don't know more, but this is why citizen journalism, this is why independent media in particular. And it, it's, you know, I when, I, when I was looking like throughout the day, there were some stories and stuff. There have been some things here and there, but we really have to find a way. And it's hard because there's so much happening everywhere and all over the place. But, um, you know, with, with Jamarian's case, you know, not that any case is any more egregious than any other, but they all have their own unique set of facts and actors and individuals. And, you know, this was a quote from the, like I said, go check out Chuck's page. This is a quote from, from her, from the press conference earlier today at the federal courthouse. Uh, those are her attorneys standing with her. Um, they filed a federal lawsuit today uh, 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 against um, the U S Marshall task force. Um, you know, the, the lawyer talks about uh, the lead, lead counsels from Chicago, they have local counsel here that's based out of Savannah. Um, and this team, actually, they're going to be working on more cases in the South, this team. But then they also have, um, I believe it's 30 plus um, police killing cases, these types of cases across the country that they're working on. So there, there's a lot more than what we see and what we hear and stuff like that. And this is like, you know, this is ongoing stuff. Just because you're not seeing the trending headlines all the time anymore. I mean, like my dad pointed out to me, you know, we had Anthony Baez. You had you you have so many people going back decades upon decades and 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 so on. Well, centuries really. When you when you look at the the social construction and systemic racism and oppression of people in this country, there was a a, a guy there from the SCLC, a, a, a white gentleman, and he pointed out that these types of raids and stuff, while we're looking at disproportionate black and brown you know communities being affected, he was like, don't be fooled. White people need to understand that this happens to us too. It may not happen in the same frequency. Now, if anyone's out there talking numbers, you don't, you never look at raw numbers. You look at the percentages and the frequency and, and, and we can talk math some other time. But he was saying that we all have to understand that this type of tyrannical behavior is unacceptable. And, you know, this quote from his mother, we have not been provided any explanation as to why they fired 76 bullets into my son's body. They shot, I think it's over 90 something rounds, but 76 bullets went into her son. 
and to see there are some graphic images and some of the clips and stuff from the signs that protest you know, supporters had out there. And you can see the skin. I mean, it's just, it's, I won't get too graphic with you, but it was, it was bad, extremely bad. I mean, it's bad because he's dead, but when you look and you see it's, it's, it's like, how can you justify this? This, this is excessive. That's, that's just all there is to it. And, um, Montero, she, she's, I mean, you know, when you meet someone who has endured what she has, what their family has, I don't know what it was like for them, you know, a year ago. I don't know what it was like for them three months ago. I don't know what it was like for them last week. I don't know what it's like, I don't know what it's like for them, right? But I do know that 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 being an unknown person coming into a space, and it, of course it helped out was with Chuck and Chuck knows the family, but she was still very warm, very attentive to everyone else around them, you know, like. We talk about black women leading and trusting black women, et cetera. And there are these mothers, there are grandmothers, there are aunties, there are sisters, girlfriends, you know, and, and yes, we had fathers and grandfathers out there today too, but there is a strength and resilience. It comes at a price, unfortunately, in terms of our health and well-being long-term, but there is a strength and resilience that people have that they're imbued with and they, they keep going. And for this woman, for Monteria Robinson, to be concerned about, did everyone have a ride? People came to support and stand with her, justice for jam. And she's worrying about making sure everyone else has a ride. Can you get back to the airport? Okay, Chuck, are you okay? <coughs> Excuse me, y'all, I'm still gonna try and get over this cold. So-and-so, are you okay? Did you eat? Like, you know, she's and she's sharp. She's like, yes, she reminds me, she reminds me of, um, I forget the wife's name, uh, 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 Rod Tidwell's wife's name and Jerry Maguire. But when she's talking about, you know, you know, we came to play ball, like, yes, we mean business. Like she was on it. And all of these women, because there were several other mothers out there, not just from the Atlanta area. There were some from the Atlanta area. There were some from, you know, Illinois and Minnesota as well. Uh, South Carolina. There were several other people, players present. And these were all of these were stories, and Chuck has several of them already up on his on his Twitter feed. All these were stories I never heard. And, and and this gets to my point about citizen journalism and independent media. Like again, it's great if you can get a presser out, if AP picks something up. That's awesome, you know. But we also have a opportunity, and I think for those of us who consider ourselves to be attached to these issues and committed to justice. If we're doing this media work, I think we also have a responsibility. And this goes back to the Project South report that I talked about from the summertime about movement journalism, about making sure that we're lifting up the voices, we're centering good people doing good work, and, and we're making sure that we're getting the message and, 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 and everything out there. So that was just a little bit from the day. Um, and I really, I really appreciate it. Like I said, I really appreciate being able to be out there. Um, had to maneuver at work today, which was a bit hectic, but it's, you know, it's all good. Uh, but Jamarian, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I also got a chance to meet, um, mothers. There, there's an organization that was formed after the murders of Alton Sterling in Philando Castile. It's called Mothers of Black Boys. And these are mothers from all over, you know, they're mothers of all races and backgrounds, et cetera. They're just, they're all mothers of black boys. Um, and it was great to sit with the Atlanta, some of the Atlanta leads to talk more and learn more about the work because yes, they're providing support in these instances where you have families seeking justice, but they're also providing, you know, uplifting and, and programming, you know, 
in celebration of, you know, our children and our families and our sons while, you know, we still have so much life to live. So, so it's great to see so much work happening, excuse me, that I didn't even know existed. Uh, So it's, it's been a very exciting and and fulfilling day. And like I said, I still did all this in between going back and forth to work and stuff. And, and so it's just so great to be talking to you guys because it's been a long time, but it's been busy. Um, but I, but I really do think that when we talk about the mutual aid, you know, thinking about Puerto Rico, we can, we can use those same models in our own neighborhood work, which a lot of people are already doing. There are community cooperatives. There's so much that people are working on already. So how do we start implementing that? You know, what are the best practices? Can, can we start sharing that information and doing, you know, community salons, just, just real basic sit downs to talk about the issues, but not just, you know, the same old, let's talk about the issues, but let's talk about some strategies. What's working? What are you doing that's, that, that's really great and exciting? If you're not, if you're someone, and I recognize that a lot of us are busy, either we work or we have limitations that we can't really get out and get around. There are ways to start figuring out how do we commit people, how do we come and interact people in these spaces and, 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 and provide something for all. So, you know, that the citizen journalism piece, helping people get their stories and stuff out. So, uh, so yeah, so two other things that happened. Um, I just saw the NAACP legal defense fund had, um, well, not legal defense fund, but the NAACP, like their legal defense team, they challenged um, uh, the the photo ID law in Alabama, and it was actually the, the case was actually dismissed today. Um, and then also pending in the Supreme Court is a challenge to the Ohio practice. Um, some of you may be aware that ahead of the 2016 election in the Ohio, and this is a practice that is done other places, um, like here in Georgia, the Ohio Secretary of State purged people who were considered inactive, right? Um, and that was a, there was a similar purge here in Georgia um, recently. And actually, as a part of that purging, they actually purged, you know, a friend of the show, Stacey Hopkins. And it was turned out there. So there's pending litigation here in Georgia. The ACLU has sued uh, our, our, our county board of elections as well as the secretary of state's office for this because it's actually in violation. There's a portion of those people who are purged. So there was a larger group of people who were purged, similar to the Ohio case, um, where people were allegedly inactive voters, right? And there's already some issues and challenges, and that's what the Ohio case is looking at. But there's a smaller group within that group that Stacey Hopkins and others were a part of across the state who they were people who moved within the same county. When you move within the same county, right, you're they're they're not you're not required to re-register. Um when you move within the same county. Now, if you move out of the county, then you have to re-register uh, to be able, in order to vote for your vote to still, still matter. So, you know, Stacy, knowing the work, doing what she does, she was able to be on it and and, and got that, you know, challenged and stuff. But um but yeah, so 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 that that's that's a couple of things that's going on right now. You know, yesterday I had a well not yesterday, two days ago now. I had the opportunity, I don't know if you guys probably saw, I was on the BBC. So cool. Yay. Um, but uh, yes, yeah, so I was on the BBC, which was pretty cool. I'm trying to get my guests in here too. You know, we are multitasking over here at The Way. Um, 
But, uh, you know, quick little snippet with the BBC about, um, you know, Oprah running for president. Like, why anyone thinks that's a good idea, I don't know. <coughs> um, there was, um, it's a short, really short, but it was still cool to be on the BBC. And, uh, get in there and stuff so so it's pretty cool so yes i'm trying to get Armand on now and get him all connected in here so hopefully he'll be on momentarily but um but yeah so you guys can definitely always hit me up waywithanoa@gmail.com. hit me up on it's 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 actually better to email me um than to hit me up on twitter because I'm going to lose track of, you know, whatever it is you guys are trying to, you know, pull in. So. Hi, Noah. How you doing? I'm getting you on screen now. Cool. <laughs> so just hold on for one second. So you guys, I am, you know, I'm learning how to work this OBS here and I'm, I'm working on getting him on screen now with with me so this will be awesome I am so thankful that you were able to reschedule because I was still sick last week oh no worries awesome so how are you doing today I'm doing great Very can you cool. all see me can you all hear me I can see you cool. let me make sure they can just let me just make sure they can hear you <coughs> go ahead and sing a song <coughs> and, uh, mic check <laughs> Get up, stand up, stand up for your rights. <coughs> oh, God, I started coughing, too, as soon as you got, got here. Uh -oh. So how are you doing this evening? Well, I'm just making sure your sound is all good. I'm doing good. It's nice to finally be on. I know, it's good to have you on. Yeah, it's been like six months. Uh... We've been dreaming of this day yes. for that long. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay, yeah, I got you. There you go. Um, So... Please, my dear friend, let everyone know who you are. Sure. Uh, my name is Herman Farahi. Uh, I am running for Nevada's 3rd Congressional District and uh, running on a unabashedly progressive platform. I'm the son of uh, an immigrant family. My father is from Iran and my mom is from Korea. They both came to this country and met in the late 70s. Barely spoke a word of English, but somehow it came together, and I'm the result of that. So thankfully, um, <laughs> I was uh, given an opportunity to, to, to be raised in this great country and uh, being given the opportunity to get an education and follow a path uh, committed towards social justice uh, and equality. And uh, that's what I've been doing for my entire adult life, and I'm just continuing that trend and running for Congress. Awesome, 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 awesome. So you're running in Nevada three, um, third congressional district. What yeah. what area of Nevada are we talking about here? We're talking about uh, so if you think of Las Vegas, the strip, okay. right, the center. Mm -hmm. This is kind of all the kind of surrounding bowl on the south side of uh, of the city of Las Vegas, all the way down to the California border. Okay, okay, very cool. And so you know you're getting up, you're running, you know things are moving along. But mm -hmm. but politics, you weren't, you know, you're not you're not some polished, you know, 
I was always heading to politics type of person. How did you, what have you been doing? How did you get to, how did you get here to the mm. point where you decided to run? Well, I'll give you a quick background. So, mm-hmm. um, like I was saying, I, I've committed my adult life to the pursuit of social justice. I uh, ended up going and doing my master's degree at George Washington University, studying international development, as well as anthropology and documentary filmmaking. Uh, very interdisciplinary, and the intention there was to um, to learn as much as I could in terms of understanding inequality, and uh, and then then being able to have informed action to address inequality. So that's led me to work on both social research projects and documentary films, uh, working with refugee communities, working with indigenous communities around the world, uh, and working with veterans here at home, and uh, continuing that that. That, that ethos of trying to solve the problems of our day, I think, you know, we're in a time when we're living in a historical moment. We're living in a moment that maybe can harken back to those historical eras in U.S. history, like the fight for uh, the Civil War, right, when we're trying to break free of the shackles of slavery. Right. That was a formative moment in U.S. history, right, the, the women's suffrage movement. Uh, what li- and and these, are, these are points in time when people... Our grandkids, our great-grandkids would ask, like, what line did you stand on, right? Right. The the union movement, where in the middle of the Gilded Age in the 1920s, you had uh, unions trying to to fight for their rights, trying to end uh, child labor, trying to fight for collective bargaining, trying to fight for all those things that we take for granted today, right? The 40-hour work week, uh, the five-day... I'm sorry, the the, the, the five-day work week. You know, all these things that we take for granted, people were literally fighting life and limb, going all the way through every era, right? You had the Vietnam War era, you had the Civil Rights era, and people would ask, like, what side did you stand on? And I think we're living in that era right now. We're living in one of those historical moments in U.S. history where our grandkids are going to say, they're going to ask, what side did you stand on? Absolutely. What did you do, right? What did you do to address all these conflating uh, uh, issues that are really coming to a head today, right? You have, you have so much, you have racial justice issues, you have uh, economic justice issues, you have climate justice issues, mm-hmm. uh, you have so many things that are coming to, to a pass right now that if we don't stand up and do all that we can to right these wrongs and to actually address these problems, that we might not be living, uh, leaving a place behind that's uh, that our children would be happy to live in. So right now we got to commit to uh, doing all we can, both from the outside and from the inside, right? We need that grassroots push, advocating up, doing direct action, doing sit-ins, doing marches, and then we need people to get on the inside as well to be able to advocate for those policies and actually respond to what people are, are desiring. And uh, and so that's what I'm. that's the ethos that I'm bringing into this campaign and hopefully uh, take it into D.C. as well. Awesome. Awesome. So in thinking about, you know, your district and uh, the race ahead of you, what are some Mm. of, you know, and well, let me back up for a second, you guys. So I'm going, I am going to ask you a question, but I just had to reflect on something. After Uh the, after the massacre happened in Vegas, I remember Mm. seeing video, like I knew you were already running, right? I knew you were going to run. I knew from when we, we had met that you were planning on running. But when I saw the video um, from the vigil in Vegas, uh, mm. you know, I it said something to me about your character, right? Because I know you're planning on running. This is your dish. This is the district you're, you're going to serve because we're going to claim that. But 
it wasn't you trying to candidate and politic and position yourself in that moment because that actually would have been a moment, you know, that was very viral, you know. So, so, and, and people, I mean, you just got to be real about the way the world is. People are callous and that type of stuff mm-hmm. happens. But in right. that moment, I saw you sharing space with others, right? I saw you being that, that, that person, being human, right? Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and, and we, I had the same experience when we met in Ohio at the Mobilize 88, you know, <laughs> in a moment, you know, you being human, you experiencing and sharing space with others and choosing to lead and serve. Even mm-hmm. when we all should have been, you know, maybe more, you know, concerned for you, you know, like, 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 like I've watched you do this. So in thinking about the issues, right, and thinking about the issues and the leadership necessary in, 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 in the district, what are some of the things that, that you've seen? What are some of the things you'd like to see change? Uh, uh, where do you where do you see that for right now? Well, I mean, you get us back to a very emotional moment uh, in mentioning the Las Vegas shooting. Um, you know, that that moment is, I think, as someone who uh, is trying to bring people together mm-hmm. and as a, as a candidate trying to do the same thing in our political space, my approach, I think, is is also predicated on wanting to close the gaps, right? Close any arbitrary lines that, that might uh, separate us. Mm-hmm. And on that day, especially too, it was such a moment where people could feel the effects of the divisiveness, right? Like the, right. the, I mean, the violence of that day itself could have been something that traumatized and scarred our community. Right. Uh, right. And so in that moment, I wasn't, uh, all, all things aside, I'm no, I'm not a candidate. I'm not any of I'm a human being. I'm a member of my community Absolutely. and I'm, I, I need to give voice and give people an opportunity at least to create a space where we can all heal. And so that was the intention of, of speaking to that congregation of people. And, you know, Las Vegas did respond, uh, quite, uh, amazingly to that. And, um, I'm, I'm thankful to have taken a part. Uh, in that response. But um, part of it too is, you know, can our politics be a space of healing? Mm. Right? Can politics be a space of transformation? And not just political transformation, right? right. Not just policy transformation. But we're, we're getting up on Martin Luther King Day, right? So let's harken back to his words. Can our politics be a space for the radical, revolutionary changing of values that he spoke about? Uh, can it be a place where we can heal divides? Can it be a place where we can bring people together in a way that maybe otherwise we can't? Speaking across issues, speaking uh, to, to a common humanity. And so that's kind of like my baseline of operating, common humanity and finding ways to connect the dots. Now, my district, um, you know, we have, uh, of course, like many districts around the country, there are certain issues that resonate, right? And uh, I think one of those big issues is obviously healthcare. Okay, right. So healthcare is an issue that so many people are, are feeling because our current system, the way it's set up, the way it, it, it puts profits over people, it actually discriminates on so many different levels, right? It discriminates, discriminates on age. Uh, you have people who are, are under the Medicare age that are so underinsured and their premiums and, and, and monthly payments are so high because they're not quite at the, the bracket of being a senior citizen yet. Mm-hmm. So it discriminates on age. It discriminates on race, right? We all know there's implicit bias when it yeah. comes to treatment. Um, it discriminates on income. 
It discriminates, obviously, right? If you can't afford health insurance, you're not going to be able to, to get the care you need. Yeah. And 27 million people are uninsured in this country, and soon to be more because of the GOP tax plan. Uh, in, in Nevada as well, we're seeing uh, a discrimination on geography as well. Okay. We're seeing that rural residents uh, aren't able to access care. And in fact, uh, hospitals are shutting down in rural areas of Nevada. Uh, so, you know, there's so many levels in which our current system does not serve the people. And that's why we need a healthcare system that is universal and covers everybody. And a Medicare for all system will get us there and get rid of a lot of these kind of discriminatory lines that are, are based on the structure of how we set up our healthcare system. So healthcare is big. Uh, environment is another huge one. You know, Southern Nevada, we have the opportunity to be a leader in terms of the clean energy economy that we need. Uh, okay. to move and just like New York City did uh, today, um, divesting from fossil fuels completely, um, we can do the same thing in every municipality and every state across the country, especially at a time when our federal government is taking active steps to go in the other direction. Right. We just saw they, they just the federal government just opened the Arctic uh, for drilling again. And I've, I'm a person who spent a lot of time in Arctic. I spent three years making a documentary film on on the music of indigenous people. And I spent a lot of time in the Arctic region. And I know firsthand how global warming and climate change is affecting the region. If you amplify that with 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 extractive fossil fuel industries, there's a domino effect there that we may not be able to stop. So. What we need to do is fight as much as we can on the local and state levels and then be able to advocate to make policies on the federal level that can lead us to the green energy economy that we need. And Las Vegas, being that we have so much sun here, <laughs> it could be a great place to do that. So, um, yeah, healthcare, uh, environment, um, income inequality, of course, and getting money out of politics. That's a huge one. And I think people across the country, regardless of stripe, regardless of political affiliation, resonate with getting big money out of politics. Because mm -hmm. people realize that their interests are not going to be met when you have a Congress, when you have an uh, executive branch that is just taking nothing but corporate and super PAC money. So in running a grassroots campaign, a people-powered campaign, we can actually lead by example and show that we can win without relying on special interests, without relying on big money. And that's what my campaign is com committed to, running a fully grassroots, people-powered campaign, talking about the issues, talking about it with passion, with energy, and engaging people to come out and get involved in the political process who otherwise would see it as, ah, oh, that's too corrupt. Let's give them reason to vote. And that's what progressives are doing across the country. All right. All right. Um, and... <laughs> And I love it when you talk back to, you know, you talk about the common humanity, you talk about, you know, these issues, right? And, and, and how you just went back from, you know, Vegas, which is a, you know, metropolitan area to like the considerations in rural communities. And when we start thinking about, we treat, you know, urban and rural as if they're just completely different worlds. And in some respects they are, um, but there are these common issues. When I was, I was just listening to what you were saying, and I think yeah. about like what's happening, you know, here, what's happening a lot of places in terms of hospital closures. Um, when you talk right. about public hospitals, you know, you might have an overburden. You might have a public hospital in an urban area but because you have the population, but you might only have one. And that was our experience this weekend with my own mm -hmm. sister, my youngest sister, who's 20. Um, she has juvenile uh, idiopathic arthritis. And we were in the emergency room for 14 hours because that was the place she has a it's not Medicaid, but it's a, it's a medical card type of thing provided through the hospital here. 
and but that was because she needed because she wasn't having a pain episode she was in pain and she needed treatment that was the only place so we had to endure 14 hours ultimately to not really have much done for her but you know i was sitting there and i'm i'm, I'm mad i'm furious i'm upset you know with this experience but then I, I I recall, you know, reading about rural hospitals here in Georgia and across the South, probably across the country that have been closed. So people who might be in a situation like my sister or others who, who, who that is their only source of care, it no longer exists in their community because, you know, we didn't expand Medicaid when we had the opportunity to. And, mm -hmm. and, and it seems like our current government is refusing to do so. So so it just seems like those issues that you mentioned when you're talking about, you know, uh, uh, health care for all, med Medicare for all. When you're talking about uh, environmental issues, right? Um, when you're talking about uh, money out of politics, a lot of people don't think money out of politics is an issue that matters for the average person as much mm -hmm. as it matters for more elite progressives who like to, you know, pontificate about praxis and stuff. But <laughs> it seems like money in politics is really a huge barrier that keeps so many of us from being able to fully participate uh, yeah. uh, 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 in our civic duties. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, in my experience in speaking to voters in the district mm -hmm. and uh, what I've noticed is that regardless of your political affiliation, people want money out of politics because mm -hmm. they recognize the corrupting influence of it. It's very simple. You know, it's similar to how at Nodapple, at Standing Rock, when people were chanting, water is life. Everyone resonates with that. Right. <laughs> if you live and breathe, you connect with that. So money in politics is a similar type of intersectional issue, bringing people together potentially. But it, it, it's such a, you know, it has so many different forms, money in politics, right? Mm -hmm. And one of those forms includes uh, candidates that are themselves independently wealthy, that are running for office, uh, which, which restricts uh, individuals that are coming from working in middle, middle classes to be able to participate uh, actively in the political process by running. Uh, I was just speaking with a with a, a member of Parliament in the UK with the Labour Party, and uh, she was like, "Oh, guess how much money it took me to run?" And I was like, "Oh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't even know what to guess because the British right. pound is so much more than the US dollar." <laughs> but uh, she literally told me it took me five hundred dollars to register, and okay. the party gave me ten. I'm sorry, not dollars, pounds, and it, the party gave me uh, a nominal amount uh, mm -hmm. as they do for for all candidates. Uh, to run, and that was it. And I was actually able to go and just speak to the voters and, and engage people and do the work of spreading a message and, and speaking to people on the issue. Our system is so ingrained with, with so much money that even mm -hmm. the definition of viability is itself based on the dollar sign. And what we're trying to do with my campaign is also challenge that by saying it's about people. So... For instance, I had, a, I had a gentleman who recently, uh, uh, I spoke to him about uh, the campaign and about donating. And he, goes to, he says to me, look, I'm, I'm uh, on a fixed income. I don't have much. I'm struggling. Um, and uh, I looked at my bank account. I don't have much to give you, man. And I said, well, you know, every dollar, every cent goes a long way. Right. And sure enough, I get an email saying that I get a donation of $1.61. And I, I called him back. I was like, bro, you didn't have to do this, man. He was like, well, you know what? I looked at my bank account and I literally gave you all I had. And I was like, just so shooken by that moment. Like it was like tears were starting to come out of my eyes because that's the person that I'm fighting for. Right. You know, 
That's the that's the American experience right now, right? Seven out of ten people have less than a thousand dollars in their savings account, and what that translates to is the fact that because of our healthcare system that puts profits over people, you're one emergency away from medical ba- bankruptcy. So many of us are, are are one paycheck away from losing our homes. You know, we're living by the shoestring these days. So many Americans are. So. You know, money in politics it has a relationship to income inequality mm-hmm. because how are you going to get representation for the people uh, if it takes a million dollars to to win a seat, right? How many how many average people can then you know participate in our politics if it's that entrenched in big money? And how are we going to you know how are, we have a majority millionaire Congress today, right? Right. How are we going to, we, we're just going to assume that they're going to be making policies that benefit the majority of Americans? I mean, that's a, that's a stretch, right? We need to get money out of politics so average citizens can take part in the political process without the vested interest coming down and, and influencing policy as well. Right. And in that way, we can overcome and speak to um, so many people about the issues, uh, especially an issue like... Um, big mind politics that has resonance on all sides of the aisle. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and I like the way you segue back into the issues, right? I mean, because people, like I said, people treat money out of politics. We're coming up now on, what is it? Uh, eight years since uh, Citizens United was 2010. Um, here in the next couple of weeks. And I like the way people treat that as, as, as if it's a separate standalone issue. Mm-hmm. And you tied that back into the piece on income inequality, and you know, and, and it goes directly into being able to resolve and address the issues that actually matter to people in our lives, right? Because if you have people who are getting, you have whether they're independently wealthy, whether they're getting money and donations from industry, which is leading, you know, uh, 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 the pack on on so much oppression in so many different areas, you know, that ability to get meaningful reform in terms of environmental regulations, we get clean energy jobs, you know, the ability to get Medicare for all, the ability to, to start right. addressing so many, it requires people who are free of those, of that shackle, right, mm-hmm. to those big money donors. And, and and so I really appreciate the way you were able to take that conversation and make it back to something relatable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then an example of the, the, the supporter who gave you, who, who was able, he's like, well, he budgeted for a dollar sixty one, Like, yeah. you know, some folks might be like, whatever. But 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 that's what I mean about your about your your character and the way you engage people because you know someone else might have blown it off if, if they weren't able to afford it or whatever or they move on or they don't waste time quote unquote right because people don't have mm-hmm. money but it's people who vote it's people who give us the power to exist in these spaces to begin with mm-hmm. and and so I, I appreciate you know you, your your reflection and carefulness because it's real easy to to, to to quote unquote sell out and, and go for where the big checks are coming from, it takes a lot more thoughtfulness and heart to do it this way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are some of the some of the you know positives and some of the challenges that you're finding so far with with, with running your campaign? Well, I mean, because like we're saying, because money has such a huge part of our our campaigning system, uh, you know, and until we come to the time when we can have public financing of elections that will level the playing field and then it would essentially then allows met the message and issues to be what's 
driving the, uh, the voter engagement. Until we get to that point, you know, we have an uphill climb, you know. And I, I, I'm tell, I tell folks, too, I, I've been to Mount Everest. I, I took the journey there and filmed uh, for a cancer foundation every step of the way. And so if I can get to, to Everest, I can climb this mountain of the U.S. Congress, too. Uh, but it is an uphill climb. And, and so many uh, progressives uh, that are running across the country, not just myself, you have hundreds, if not thousands of candidates across the country committed to making systematic change. And knowing that to make systematic change, we have to free ourselves from the shackles of big money. We have to free ourselves from the shackles of corporate interests, which will dictate policy through the contributions, right? That's their pathway. If we can cut that pathway off, make it clean money, make it people-driven, then we can actually win on the issues. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so I, t- I, I try not to dwell on the challenges. Okay. There's challenges every day. Every, every single one of us has challenges in our everyday life mm-hmm. that we overcome every single day. And we all find a way to do it, right? So I'm also uh, doing that as well, actively seeking to overcome that challenge. And every time we overcome that challenge, we create a new horizon for ourselves and mm-hmm. more light comes to pass. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so the, 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 the big part of it is obviously what I'd like to do is kind of change the framing of when people think about viability. Like typically media, for instance, they, they think about vi- uh, viability and they define it as the dollar sign. How much money did you raise? I'd like to shift that and start thinking about how much people do you bring into your, your campaign, right? How many individual donors, unique donors, how many volunteers, how many supporters, how many doors you've knocked, how many phone calls you've made, how many voters that you've spoken to. That should be what defines viability. And we need to get to the point where that is a more powerful force than money alone. And through that, win some of these seats, win these elections, and show that really people power is the, 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 the prime mover of our time right now. So I'm, I'm hoping that in my seat as well, that uh, that resonates with voters and that gets us over the hump and uh, into, into office. Yeah, I definitely appreciate because I was looking for the word because you don't want to say positives and negatives because like you just, I, I, again, again, you guys, you know, if you guys, if you're in Nevada, how can you get involved? You know, definitely consider, you know, helping out Herman's case, uh, uh, case campaign. Um, but even if you aren't there, you know, we can definitely talk more about ways to get involved with digital campaigning and organizing to help support and get uh, him into office representing the third congressional district. So and just thinking about, you know, just 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 what are some of the most important things that you think people need to know about you, your campaign and your candidacy? Uh, well, I think, uh, for one, we're, we're talking about, uh, we're, we're living in a time when the ideals that we hold as American ideals, right? Mm-hmm. Equality, tolerance, diversity, all these things are under threat today. Um, and one way we can push back against that is by creating more opportunities for diverse candidates. So, for instance, myself, I'm, um, I'm first-generation American uh, and I'm Iranian, Korean, American, lots of different hyphens on that. Um, we've never had in our country uh, a, a Persian-American uh, congressperson. Hmm. We've only ever had one Korean-American congressperson, and we don't have neither. We, we have no representation of those large diasporas in our country in Congress at a time 
when both of those countries are under the radar and potentially under the target of a Trump administration that's seeking to escalate conflict in both the Korean Peninsula and in Iran. So I think it, it's, it, it merits um, to have people who understand both the culture and the dynamics of those regions to be in office, to be able to advocate, uh, to, to give voice uh, to those areas in which our foreign policy affects. Right. So, um, you know, that's, that's and, and especially at a time when we're pushing back against this, this kind of xenophobic uh, administration, um, I think it merits uh, more discussion to have more diversity in Congress. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I, I want to share with you, like, a personal reason why I decided to run, too. I've been citing, um, you know, structural reasons, historic reasons, um, uh, policy reasons. For me, uh, even though this has been uh, kind of a, a natural evolution for me to, to, to get involved in, in uh, to run a campaign as a candidate, uh, to give voice to, to marginalized and disenfranchised right. people across the country which I've been doing through all kinds of means my whole adult life, what really did it for me, uh, almost as if the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back, was when um, shortly after losing my father, who was my rock, you know, he was a person who, he didn't need to sit me down and tell me about the concept of equality. He showed me by his everyday life. When he passed and I was coming out of my, uh, my grief at the time, I decided to do what we had dreamed of doing for so long, which was to travel to Iran together and uh, reconnect with family members, uh, reconnect with a culture that I had only known through my father. And we didn't have that opportunity to do that during his lifetime. Um, but I, I, de I decided I'm going to carry this journey uh, into, uh, I'm going to carry him in my heart. Mm. And I'm going to walk on this healing journey, on this journey of connection, and honor him in doing so. Well, just as I was empowering myself to do that, uh, Trump puts out the Muslim ban, the, the travel ban, uh, effectively making it incredibly difficult uh, for me to travel, but also affecting my family in ways that really, uh, really hurt. For instance, my, my family members in Iran could not come to the U.S. to pay their respects and visit my father's grounds. You know, so there, there's, it was really personal and very deeply emotional, the impact of that policy. And then I realized that it's not, you know, I'm just one of millions of people that are affected to an existential level by the xenophobic policies of the Trump administration. Uh, not just Muslim Americans, right. uh, but also you have our dreamers, you have the undocumented community, you have members uh, who have received uh, a temporary protective status. We saw recently uh, the, the Salvadorian community, 200,000 people who have just about the same amount of children born in this country who own homes, who own businesses, who pay taxes every day, that they have now uh, are facing a circumstance where they might not even be here anymore. You know, they may face deportation because of the ending of TPS. So for me, it was just a, an eye-opener to the fact that so many people are under threat today, and we need to step up and give voice to these people, give mm -hmm. voice to the 7 out of 10 Americans that have barely nothing in savings account you know it's really right. we're at a time where it's not just the the right-wing xenophobic forces that are pushing certain communities right. but it's also the corporate forces that are literally buying our democracy out that is pushing all working and middle-class americans to the brink and what we need to do right now is fight back and reclaim our american ideals 
and reclaim our democracy. And that's what my campaign is committed towards. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, um, how can people get involved? What, 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 what help, if any, do you need? Uh, uh, let people know how they can get involved. Where can they find you and learn more information? Sure. Well, I can use all the help I can get. I'm a grassroots candidate uh, running a fully grassroots operation. Uh, we just, uh, this, this year, we're beginning our volunteering efforts really strong. We're amping up our game. We're doing phone banking sessions. We're doing canvassing. We're knocking doors. So if you are in the Las Vegas area or if you need a reason to come to Las Vegas, look me up at hermanforthepeople.com. That's H-E-R-M-O-N, forthepeople.com. Get in contact with me. If you need an excuse to come out to Vegas, come knock on doors with me. Um, otherwise, you can always get involved uh, through your financial contribution. Any, any amount goes a long way. No amount is too small. And I would implore people to, to give what little that they can. And in that way, we can show that we're building a people's movement. We can show strong numbers in terms of every individual. You know, I'm less concerned about the dollar sign. I'm more concerned about getting people involved and activated in whatever capacity that they can get. So you can check me out online on Facebook at Herman for the people with a number four, uh, or you can visit my website at HermanForThePeople.com. Awesome. Awesome. So you guys definitely check Herman out. Make sure to, you know, I know there's some people running, but you know, we can get a cadre of folks together to help with social media, the digital organizing, you know, for okay. those of you who, who do the digital fundraising work, um, th there is a way, that energy that brought us all together in 2015, 2016, yeah. we have so many candidates running right yeah. now. And, and going back to the earlier part of our conversation about mutual aid, this is how we <laughs> build it, right? We build it um, not by spinning our wheels, arguing with folks about whether or not Oprah should be president or not. We <laughs> build it by supporting good people, doing good work, particularly our candidates who are willing to put it on the line and put themselves out there. So mm -hmm. my brother, my dearest, thank you so much, one, for joining me this evening. And, and, and two, thank you for, for taking this step and, and putting yourself out there because we need people like you on the front lines leading. Mm. Don't thank me, Anoa. Thank, I, I need to thank you for creating this space. <laughs> what you've been doing all these years and, and, and continue to do every day Going to Puerto Rico and helping with relief work, man, I wish I could join you with that, you know? Well, let's but. talk about that, too, because I know you're running a campaign, but uh, <laughs> your, your, your skill set in terms of the documentary aspect of it all um, is, is I definitely, I, I have to, you know, do a, a more complete update for everyone about that whole project. But, but <laughs> I really feel like as much as we can embrace this sharing environment, right? We, we have a sharing economy in terms of our activism, our work and, and campaigning, and we really need to figure out how can we best, you know, help engage and build. So I really do hope that folks will continue donating uh, uh, to, to different candidates. They will continue to support and engage and, and do the good work that we've already been doing so far and will continue to do and grow. So thank you so much for joining me this evening. And thank, thank you, you guys for tuning in. I know you know, different, slightly different schedule, and I've been gone for a month, but I'm back. Uh, so there's great content. This will be up. If you're listening to this on iTunes or iHeartRadio, thank you so much for subscribing and, and listening to The Way. Um, but also check out, I have new content coming from Dr. Robin D'Angelo, uh, and there's some other stuff coming down the pipeline too. So appreciate uh -huh. you guys lots.
Thank you so much, brother, for joining me this evening. Thank you, Anna. All right. Take thanks, care. everybody. Good night.